Welcome. Great to be here. So uh, a lot going on, and I think we have to start by uh, talking about the increase in bombing. Uh, Reuters, a couple of hours ago, headline, Russian missiles rained down on Ukraine as West, I can't see the rest of the headline, as West pledges enduring support. A few minutes ago, NATO vows to modernize Ukraine's military to fight off Russian invasion. What's your take on this increase in bombings around the country? Uh, an obvious effort to kill civilians by bombing a mall. Where does that fit in the mind of a dictator? Yeah, so of course, the first thing you're going to hear from uh, Moscow and from you know aligned Putinists around the world is that these are mistakes, right? That uh, of course the Russian artillery um, was trying to target some uh, arms depot, which miraculously was placed just next to a very busy mall, right in the middle of the city, because this is how you do it, right? If you yes, if you conduct a war, um, all of this is is complete nonsense. So we got to step back to you know where this strategy comes from, and it's we have to step. 110 years back because it originated in a place that probably most of us would not expect, Italy. Okay. So there was a Italian general, his name was Giulio Duet. So it's a French family name, um, but he was Italian. He was an Italian of Italian army. And he uh, witnessed the beginnings of air force aviation and air theater in wars, starting with the Italian-Libyan War of 1911. So this is where Italy uh, fought against uh, the Ottoman Turks in Libya. So Turks were always very interested in Libya to this day. Hmm. But it was one of the last wars of the Ottoman Empire. Duet observed the huge um, uh, superiority that aviation air force could offer, you know, nascent air force, right? This was mostly for reconnaissance, but there were beginnings of bombings as well. Yeah. Like, of course, not missiles that didn't exist until Germans uh, inventions in the second world war, the Feldzwei that were raining on, on London. Um, so it came entirely from, from aircraft. And in his theory that he laid out later in his very important work called Dominia dell'Aria, which means the, the command of the air, he laid out the principles of what needs to be done to terrorize the population on the other side, mm. terrorize them and force them to surrender by uh, overwhelming power. It means firepower. Yeah. That's not really targeting specifically military or infrastructure uh, targets, but civilians. And you can say, well, who cares about an Italian, you know, general who wrote, uh, a piece. Well, it, it, it became very influential in 1920. So he died in 1930. He managed to be a strong supporter of Mussolini in the meantime. Uh, but he had two important, uh, followers. One was, uh, Sir Henry Trenchard, who was a British marshal and one was Billy Mitchell, an American general, and both believed strongly in the theory that basically, uh, air superiority and bombing from the air is the tool to uh, force the the opponent to eventually genuflect in front of you and surrender. And as we know, uh, Second World War, much more than First World War, played out largely 
uh, along these lines with mass of civilian casualties. It started with Germans bombing Polish cities in 1939. Uh, and then, of course, uh, the Battle of England in 1940. And then uh, we had bombings going the other side. So I mentioned Billy Mitchell, the American um, strategist, the general, you know, Americans and the British Air Force used exactly the same uh, tactics, both against Germany with famous bombings of Dresden, for example, and against Japan. Mm -hmm. And in Japan, it has such a devastating uh, re result uh, in purely human life. Yes. Tokyo and fam famous firebombing of Tokyo was uh, probably the you know largest destruction of human civilian life in one go. And I'm not putting it lightly because we have usually, you know, Hiroshima and Nagasaki at the back of our minds. Right. Uh, but something that's not well known, my adopted Japanese mother that you met once, um, she uh, grew up in Tokyo right after the war as a, as a baby. And because there was nothing there, there were, there were just, everything was burned. There were no walls, so you couldn't actually have any privacy to even wash yourself. And there was no water. And what did the family decide to do in the early years after the war? They moved from Tokyo to Hiroshima mm. because it was less destroyed, right? Yes. So this is, this is how, how, you know, little we know about the actual uh, results of, of bombing. Now, the theory that Julio Duet uh, posited there and which didn't play out during the second world war and nor does it nor is it playing out very well for Russians right now, is that it failed. Eventually it failed. Yes, you can destroy cities. Yes, you can kill a lot of people. But think about it. Nobody in Nazi Germany was raising, rising in revolution against Hitler because of those bombings. Right. Uh, the Japanese uh, surrendered because the elites decided to surrender, not because people rose against their rulers. And nor will Ukrainians rise against the war. Right? And, you know, what brought peace to... To Japan was a very astute um, policy introduced by General MacArthur. You can actually say that rather than you know generating hatred or intra uh, internecine hatred within the Japanese society, it's the love <laughs> that Americans brought to the society. There's one of the there are great books about it. If someone's interested, how how the country switched over later under the American occupation. Um, so it's unlikely to really succeed in, in the Russian case. Um, you know, these bombings of Kiev or Kremenchuk and so on. And of course, you know, you can then kind of question the rationale of doing this precisely at the moment when the G7 or now the NATO meeting in, in, in Madrid, which of course leads to, you know, stronger, um, unity among those, you know, 30 odd members of NATO and the, the seven members of G7. As you know, these things these days are not happening somewhere out there. You know, when Hitler was invading Ukraine in the 1940s, and we at best could read something about it in, in newspapers a day or two yeah. later, if at all. Well, now we have the social media, we have we have the films, we see what's happening. So the impact is very strong in the West, which has to work towards this unity. And it's quite remarkable how strong this unity is after after you know four months and you know, I've been very surprised by how smooth the negotiation was between Turkey and the Nordic countries. Something we'll go back to at some point because we'll have to talk about Turkey. Yes. Turkey and Ukraine, but there's no time for us today. Um, and so definitely that strategy that follows Julio Duet's ideals from over a hundred years ago is eventually probably, you know, 
playing against Putin's uh, designs to to splinter the Ukrainian society and also splinter the Western support for Ukraine. Is this pathological? Is this narcissistic? Is this really just one guy? It seems like such an individual act of revenge. So the West is meeting and making decisions about him and his country, and he strikes back. It, it, is it is that too simple, or or is that really a factor here? So, you know, we we have to be careful about this. You know, what we adopted as a narrative that this is just Putin's war. Mm -hmm. He's the only person. He's not the one who actually is pushing the button on these specific, uh, you know, missiles or rockets or cruise missiles and so on. Uh, there is there is an entire elite that's entirely uh, favoring this particular strategy. And they're adjusting their strategy. You know, the initial strategy in this war uh, clearly backfired. They didn't manage to take out the you know, Ukrainian leadership, didn't manage to occupy Kiev. They didn't destroy the statehood. Um, and they readjusted. And this readjustment is extremely bloody, extremely, you know, terrorizing definitely for the local population. Um, they, I think still a large part of the elite is convinced that using these sort of methods would somehow allow them to um, exhaust the Ukrainian population. So, you know, I don't know what's in Putin's head or Narishkin's head or Medvedev's head or whoever the current, you know, uh, hardliner is in, in Moscow, as you can see through tweets, it's often Dmitry Medvedev, the vice, right. the former president. Um, but, you know, I listen to what Putinists or, or other you know, extreme right-wingers are saying who support Putin, all left-wingers. Um, and their level of disdain for the Ukrainian uh, population is quite remarkable. There is there is a, a racist element to it. So Ukrainians are those hohol, you know, so there are those, you know, those, those, those peasants, you know, how can they claim to have their own entity and they pick up often on elements that we find in the media to support their view. For example, they notice that, you know, all of those people in on, in the villages and towns on the front line, first they speak Russian. So of course they're not Ukrainians. Right. And secondly, they're not running away. Okay. So they actually, that means that they want the Moscow's forces to come over. Now this is complete nonsense. As you know, because you saw it firsthand, most refugees who found themselves outside of Ukraine are Russian-speaking refugees because they're running yeah. away from the areas they're being attacked, right? Who's staying behind and who do you see in this footage, which is, you know, it's, I encourage always to watch European news. There's more journalists that are embedded on the front line than, you know, from, from the American news. It's, it's more firsthand. And you see actually some elderly, um, sickly people who will not move, they won't move. They want to just stay where they are. And for them, indeed, it doesn't really matter. They just want peace. They're not gonna, they're not gonna run away. They're afraid of moving away from their village, whether it's peace or war. Yes. They want to stay within, and of course, many of them die too, but it's extremely difficult for an overweight 68 year old babushka to conceive of the idea of moving, you know, to V for Ivano Frankovsk or Warsaw or something even more exotic than that. And so I, mean, that, I, 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 I want to jump 
I want to jump in here for a sec, because as you're saying that, I think a lot of us can look at our own experiences with our parents or our grandparents and realize how resistant they were to moving or change under the best of circumstances. No one was bombing them. You just knew they would be better off not in their own home and, and look how they resisted. Imagine under these chaotic circumstances, it's not going to get easier. It's only going to get harder. Yeah. So, you know, that's, that's of course, you know, the explanation that I think speaks to all of us who have yeah. had families with elderly members, but the Putin's propaganda is using this, abusing it and looking for rifts and saying, okay, these are Russian speakers who are not running away things they actually want. Moscow's rule yeah. in the, in those areas. Right? Yeah. So, yeah, I think, I think the bombing in a way is part of that old Julio duets. Yeah. Let's just, let's just, uh, force them to surrender. And if, if, if the, if the military command or political command don't surrender, the people will rise and force them to surrender. Yes. Which I don't think we're going to see in the next hundred years in Ukraine. So. Before we go on, I want you to take a look at the question from Anna. Mm -hmm. uh, I'll read it out loud here. If you scroll up, you'll see it. She asks, financial actions being considered. What can commoners do other than donate and sharing news about boycott Red Bull or who to harass? What can our viewers do? What can they encourage other people to do beyond the obvious things of donating, which people continue to do? And that's great. Please do continue to do it if you can. Joining things like the Beams boycotts. Are there other things people should be doing and encouraging other people to do to support Ukraine and fight against Russia? Yeah. So, um, you know, there are two ways. Depends when, when you are physically. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, financial flow, of course, doesn't have borders. At least not, not in this case. Um, but... If you're not willing to, you know, relocate something which you did, for example, in the beginning of this war and help on the spot, there are a number of things that you can do. And it depends on your interest, the area of interest. And I'll give you an example. You know, if, if you're living in the United States, then it's fairly straightforward because we have a system where each, uh, member of a district can contact, uh, the office of the senator. Right. Yeah. So it's possible to actually exert directly influence over politics in Washington this way. In other countries. Well, let me, let me just add Senator and also your, your actual particular representative in the house. The house. Yeah, exactly. Either. either of those, you know. So that's, that's, that's the first thing. So political pressure and, you know, you have to look at the country in which you are, how you can exert the political pressure uh, for, you know, at, at the parliamentary level, for example. The second. And, and let, me, let me jump in once again. Not only can you contact your member of the House of Representatives and, and Senator, but you can also get a hundred other people to do it. Anna yeah. says, say, Anna says, and say what? So I think that's a great question. Let, let's hit on that. Oh, you know, that, you know, that's to keep the support. So you, you, you should be able to know whether the member of parliament who represents you has, uh, voiced, uh, any, uh, concern about the situation, whether that person is on your side or not, you're a voter. It's your power to keep yeah. these people in power or not. So, so make sure that that remains on top of the agenda because it's too easy to focus on 
you know, internal domestic issues, many domestic issues, especially in Europe right now are, you know, the ricochet, economic ricochet of the, of the conflict, not least yeah. the energy situation and it's very easy to lose the focus of where the problem is actually coming from. So, you know, tackling the problem and its root is really important and, and, and really forcing. You asked about boycott of specific goods. So these goods are made by companies. Most of these cases are public companies and publicly listed companies. It's very easy to find out who the largest shareholders of these companies are and contact the shareholders. You know, clearly a case of some French companies, infamous French companies like Akov or Auchan and so on that still have not pulled out of Russia. So uh, the, the same with some German uh, automakers and so on. So uh, there is still some work to be done, even though, you know, many household names have pulled out and that should go through the largest shareholders. Just a person from the streets has zero influence. But if you, if you, if you call the office of a portfolio manager of a pension fund that puts billions of dollars in the company X that makes Red Bull, they're going to listen to them. So that is, that is the way to go. Now, another thing is, of course, is to, you know, there's, there's power in numbers. So it's, it's really easy to identify groups that organize, you know, public events, you know, definitely there, are, there will be Ukrainian groups, um, ethnic Ukrainians, or it, with some specific, um, specific, um, target, uh, you know, there are links where you can join an anti-troll army, you know, yeah. a lot of Russian trolls are very active also in English, sometimes broken English, but in English on social media. There are certain links that Ukrainians are providing and disseminating to fight that, you know, cyber war. And that just enough to have a keyboard and, 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 and be fluent in, in the language. I guarantee you'd be more fluent than people sitting in St. Petersburg. But there's more that can be done. And for those who have some engineering skills, there are those conclaves that get together to hack Russian internet. So recently there was a meeting in Winnipeg. So, so, you know, maybe. About 5% of Canadians are of Ukrainian origin. So this is a, you know, celebre in, in Canada and, you know, engineers get together and just sort of brainstorm how to better hack the uh, Russian internet system. Right. Yeah. Uh, you know, let's not forget that the cyber war so goes in the other direction. Right. So you have to know, be prepared and work from a platform that, you know, you know, that's going to be uh, perfectly secure, but there are, you know, there are multiple waste ways to engage at, at at a distance and i think you know uh, pressure and and uh, you know continued support and of course in your if you're in a country where there are refugees you can also contact the organizations that deal with refugees and please stay in help and find out what can be done you know i want to add to this and this is for anna and everyone else um i think the reality is whatever you do is going to help. It's going to help in the, the specific thing that you take on. It's going to help because you're going to tell your family and friends about it and hopefully get them engaged as well. But I think one of the dangers is trying to reinvent the wheel here. There are so many existing outlets to help, which is part of what you're saying. Don't try to figure out the best or the right or the smartest. Just find something find some local people or find an online community and just help. And that will lead you to others who are helping. Mm. And if you sit around trying to figure out what's the best thing to do six months from now, you may still be sitting around trying to figure out the best thing to do and you didn't actually do anything. So do something, anything today and just dive in 
wherever you see an opportunity and take advantage of it. I want to add one more thing, and this is really relevant for Anna, who I know well, and so do many of our viewers. You know, Anna, you're a very savvy user of social media. I'm pasting something into the chat, which is the Twitter handle or, or Twitter page of a guy named, and I'm going to mispronounce his name, Anton Yaroshenko. He is an official in the Ukrainian uh, government, and he is right now, as we're speaking, outing oligarchs on Twitter that have not had sanctions put on them. One thing we all could do today is to click that link, go to his page, and use Twitter and Facebook to shame governments into putting sanctions on additional oligarchs who have not yet been caught by the net. That's just a little thing, but it's a thing you can do today. And in the course of doing it, you're probably going to discover other things you can do. So, you know, this is sort of like exercise or diet. You could talk about it forever or just get started. And I encourage you to just get started. So with that, I want to move on to another topic for the day, which is the Rush Russia's gas war on Europe. I'm actually going to paste another link in the chat box of a map as soon as I can grab it here. Hold on. And I encourage everybody to open this link and look at the map in a different window of your browser while we're talking. Because, Thomas, I kind of want to hit on this gas war, what's happening today and why it's so important uh, in terms of Ukraine's ability to fight back, really the, the, the world's ability to fight back against Russia. Yeah, in Ukraine's case, this has been going on for 20 years. Um, and here's, here's why. Energy is a weapon. You can use it as a weapon. In fact, this is one of the biggest asymmetries that we can find between the free world, the countries that are based either on competition and cooperation, and the non-free world, the countries that strive for conflict and destabilization. And these are, of course, predominantly Russia and China, and they turn, tend to exploit everything to, mm -hmm. to, to weaponize it in their relations with the free world. Energy is one example. Trade is another. Migration flows is another, even tourist flows in the case yes. of, of China. Of course, information, you know, social media, corruption, um, uh, indoctrination. Anything goes, right? So everything is potentially a weapon. In the case of Russia, of course, energy has been there for a while. And I'm going to refer to a, a, a piece that Jeffrey Sachs published, a friend of mine sent it to me yesterday in one of the left-leaning um, portals, where he basically accuses American government of uh, being too activist. It's all neocons again, neoconservatives are doing then he lists all the Jewish names of neocons that, you know, ruled this country's foreign policy 20 years ago, um, stuck in a time warp completely. And it's sad for Jeffrey Sachs, who I, you know, met many years ago to fall that low. Um, why? Because this is again, what we discussed about realists, right? These are people who deny the other side agency. They believe that only we Americans have agency and nobody else does. But how did this happen with energy? So if we step back to 1970s, when America was in a case of self-doubt a little bit, so after the Vietnam War, 
of course, the you know the Iranian hostage uh, crisis, you know, very high inflation, and it seemed like you know USSR was catching up quickly. Um, Kaspar Weinberger, who was uh, Secretary of Defense under Ronald Reagan, he launched something called Strategic Concept Development System. Say it again. Strategic Concept Development System. Okay. In 1981, and for 20 years. Um, several people from both civilian and military side would get together and think what to do. How can we get ahead of USSR? And you might remember those who are old enough, this concepts such as Star Wars, for yes. instance, There's different things that were not the movie invented, not the movie. No, the real Star Wars in terms of a military theater. Now, half of this was theater, half of this was military, to be honest, but yeah. you know, at the beginning of this process, it wasn't clear what the United States had to do to get ahead of the Russians. This was still, you know, before the collapse of the, you know, Soviet uh, might in Afghanistan. So, you know, what should we do? Should we go nuclear? Should we go conventional? What is, and, you know, this partly actually helped us win the cold war many, many years later, but it doesn't mean that Soviets were completely passive and, you know, did nothing. Of course, they had no idea about this process, which was uh, classified and only recently declassified. Uh, but they had their own, and this is what the likes of Jeffrey Sachs and Henry Kissinger, John Mersheimer forget. They had their own uh, project, and their own project was launched about four years later, around 1985, by two members of the Soviet Politburo. Their names was um, Yulik Fitsinski and Valentin Fallon, and they suggested that Soviet Union should use energy as a weapon, mm. weaponize energy, and this is at the time when you know where. You know, energy intake in Europe was a fraction of what it is now. And again, it didn't happen overnight. You know, as we know, Soviet Union collapsed, but precisely this strategy has been applied essentially since Putin became prime minister. So 1998, and then it accelerated after 2000 when he became president for the first time. So to understand that, and we're talking about natural gas only. So let me just explain to you some basics about natural gas to understand where we are. And that, that could take us a little, you know, longer. So interrupt me if there's something that's, that's, that's not clear. Um, so nat there are, so we're talking about natural gas, not gas as gasoline, right? Yes. In the US. yes. Um, so natural gas, there are essentially three markets, natural gas. There is the domestic American market. We have very large producer and consumer. We produce about a trillion cubic meters of, of natural gas, uh, per annum of which we export a fraction about historically you know, a couple of percentage in the form of liquefied natural gas. Now it's much more than us, about 17, 18% of what we produce is exported, but it's a new development. And that points us to the second uh, market, which is the LNG market. So liquefied natural gas, these are vessels that move around the world. Uh, you know, gas is liquefied at the export terminal and then regasified again at the import terminal on the other side, whether it's in Europe or Asia, which are the main uh, uh, main importers. And then there's the third market, which is the European market, which is dominated by pipelines, like those that you can see in the, on, on the map that, that uh, Greg sent out. And these pipelines lead mostly from Russia, from the East to the West. Where from Russia? Well, this you don't see on the, on the map because it's kind of, uh, extends further to the upper right, um, corner. Um, it comes mostly from a peninsula, Yamal Peninsula, which is 
north of Ural Mountains. So this is roughly the limit between geographic Europe and Asia. And then there is a long bay uh, called Ob Bay. Ob is the name of a very long river um, that flows in there. And the main gas fields are in this area. Uh, this area traditionally was inhabited by Nenets. These are Uralic-speaking people, so distantly related to Finns and, and, and Hungarians. And so all of these pipelines come from either Yamal Peninsula or Yamburg, which is a city on the other side of that of, of, of that of that bay. And there there was pipeline structure before the 21st century, but nothing that you can compare to this network you see on the on the on on the map. However, the oldest one that existed went through Ukraine. Mm -hmm. You see in the middle of this, you see the capacity of, of the Ukrainian pipeline system. So Russia produces about 700 billion cubic meters, so slightly less than, than US, but then exports almost half of this, 300. Mm -hmm. And most of this goes to Europe. So you see that capacity of the Ukrainian pipelines is half of what Russia exports annually on a global basis. And some of what Russia uh, exports always uh, also goes for LNG, but it's a tiny fraction. So just coming back for the moment to that trinity of three different markets. So these markets, the prices historically have been very disconnected. So the cheapest gas is in the United States is between three to five, six, sometimes dollars per BTU. BTU stands for British Thermal Unit, and that means the amount of heat you need to, uh, to heat one pound of water uh, by one degree Fahrenheit. Apologies for Imperial for those who are from Europe here, but that's what it is, BTU. And so that's how low the prices have been low because LNG prices are nothing like this. When Fukushima disaster hit Japan in 2011 and their um, nuclear uh, capacity was shut out overnight. They had to uh, import a lot of um, uh, liquid natural gas, mostly from Qatar. And those prices back then, you know, here in the United States were three, four dollars. They were eleven, twelve dollars, right? Mm -hmm. In Japan, so very, very expensive. So LNG has that um, reputation of being expensive. This could be one reason, among many, why Europeans, uh, especially Germans, were so keen to ensure a pipeline network that would um, um, supply them with natural gas for pipelines uh, from Russia, because these are well-written contracts, you know, it doesn't uh, jump up like LNG all the time. And who would like to be dependent on America in the first place, right? Let's, let's become dependent on Mr. Putin. Yeah, Russia is a much more dependable partner. Okay. So much more dependable. Uh, the argument often was, look, Russia used to sell uh, natural gas, even during the Soviet times, not mm. least for those pipelines they're going through for Ukraine. Uh, well, I mean, and I assume some of it was geographic too. It's easier to build a pipeline across land than across an ocean, isn't it? Yeah, it's not a pipeline that you, you know, what, what goes across well, ships, you the vessels, right? Okay. So the vessels are about between 125,000 up to 200,000 cubic meters. So you need a lot of this and only about yeah. 100 million a year that moves through the vessels, but this is growing fast, right? Yeah. Whereas here we're talking about much larger, larger amounts that are go by pipelines. Pipelines are built either from Russia to Europe or from uh, Turkmenistan uh, east to to China. These are the main pipeline networks for for natural gas around the world. And so, uh, but remarkably, you know, in 2014, Russia invades Crimea, and then starts meddling with the Donbas. Uh, that 
what you see in the middle of this map, that capacity, 145 billion cubic meters, uh, that was throttled down to about 80. So Russia, since before the, the, the Maidan revolution started to blackmail Ukraine, because of course, Ukraine perceived a certain, you know, transit fees for the yes. for gas. And so that's one reason why left-wing politicians in Germany were so gung-ho on building pipelines that would be independent of the transit for Ukraine or even the Baltic nations. And this is how the Nord Stream 1 and then Nord Stream 2 were, were built through the Baltic. There was also a third project, the South Stream, that would also uh, move around the Black Sea South. But Gazprom, the uh, Russian monopoly or near monopoly, was so trying to squeeze European partners, you know, commercially that eventually they bailed out, right? The South Stream was not built. There was another project for Turkish, Turk Stream um, in the South, which I think shows on this map. And interestingly yeah. now, this is now idle because its main role was to provide um, Bulgaria with gas. And as you know, in this heating gas war between Russia and the West, Bulgaria and Poland had been now cut off from. Yeah. Um, so, you know, very good investment by Turks or whoever contributed to building that, that pipeline. And nothing runs for this right now. In, indeed, uh, this um, standoff has uh, intensified over the last four months. But you have to really question um, the sanity of the uh, European decision makers over all these years. And this is not just about the first war in Ukraine. First, you become over-dependent. So uh, out of 450 billion cubic meters of gas that Europe uses, about 180 to 200 would come from Russia. And the Nord Stream 2, which eventually didn't happen, would add another 55. So, you know, yeah. moving 25% dependence up to probably all close to 50, right? That's right. So that's number one. Number two, Europeans were completely less affairist about it. So the government, so they allowed different clients, different companies to sign separate contracts with Gazprom. So on the one hand, you have essentially a state-controlled entity that weaponizes trade. On the other hand, you have small companies, say in Germany and Italy, that sign different contracts. Now, who's, who's powerful here? Who's not, right? That's pretty obvious. The third thing that's happened, and specifically in, in, in Germany, and that's quixotic when, when the new government now realized that, is that um, storage is controlled in Germany by Gazprom to a large extent. The largest storage controlled by Gazprom. That shows that the preparations for the kinetic war in Ukraine started for real, not only with the, you know, the military that surrounded Ukraine since spring of 2021, but Gazprom started it in the fall of last year. Mm -hmm. So that was a fairly mild winter in Europe. So you would expect uh, the storage to be in good shape after the winter. That didn't happen. Storage mm -hmm. was dependent on Gazprom had almost zero capacity filled after after this winter. In fact, if I just went back to some data from November last year, suddenly they were like, it was flashing, oh, and Gazprom doesn't put any gas on, on, on its platforms to sell back in November. So, you know, winter uses four times as much in European right. climate, four times as much gas as, as summer. So it's important. And this is why the prices of natural gas already spiked around December in Europe, the European prices. And so, you know, the question is, why would you leave 
<laughs> your storage in your own country under the control of, you know, supposedly a JV partner uh, that depends on the, on the Russian government. Another thing was lobbying against LNG terminals. So putting, you know, Gerhard Schroeder on top of um, gas from a Nord Stream 2 um, as, a, as a chairman of the board, uh, in one case, a member in the other case, uh, you know, that also guaranteed that significant, important politicians from Social Democratic Party were lobbying actively against LNG terminals. So regasification terminals that could connect Europe to other exporters, whether it's yeah. coral, um, Norway, United States, or Australia. And so that didn't happen either. Another thing that, that happened very curiously in Europe is that electricity prices are connected to gas prices. So the moment Gazprom turns off the tap, electricity prices go up. And in many countries, including Spain, which is far away, the retail prices, so someone, you know, heating home or maybe cooling home in Spanish case, would have to pay higher prices if, if that pleases Mr. Putin for his strategic um, objectives. Uh, and add to this low connectivity because, you know, some countries still see their power electricity networks as sort of like a, you know, national fief. And so that's the case in France with the nuclear. So the connectivity between Spain, which has the largest number of LNG regasification um, terminals and important link to Algeria, which is a big exporter, there is very little connectivity between Spain and France. So if Spain mm. doesn't have a connectivity with France, obviously it doesn't have connectivity with the rest of, of, right. of the continent either, right? Now, it's interesting if you just follow from since November, what, what happens slowly uh, you know, there's, there's been this escalation by, by Gazprom, uh, not least in the case of Poland and Bulgaria, not least uh, in the case of, you know, claiming that gas would have to be paid for with rubles rather right. than euro and, or, or dollar, whatever the currency was in the contract. So reneging on the contract. And then eventually, um, we see th that certain moves by Gazprom, by uh, Russian government coincide with certain events in the. In, in, in the West. So for example, when Scholz, Johannes, uh, Macron, Draghi uh, visited Kiev, around the same time, suddenly we have the tab being squeezed again, right? So, right. you know, after all these months of discussion in Germany, what happens when Putin actually cuts it off? Well, he started to cut off. So the, you see there are two pipelines on this map. One is Nord Stream 1, which functions, that goes for the Baltic. And the big other one, the horizontal one called Yamal, that goes for Poland to Germany. So uh, they both come from the Yamal Peninsula, and I mentioned before, nothing's coming for Yamal right now. There's zero yes. flow. As you know, Poland has been cut off, but it's not a big deal for Poland because they had arrangements with Norway and they have this LNG terminal, which you can see there in Shunowiszcze. Shunowiszcze uh, could be possibly a target of a cyber attack by, um, by Russia because it could also serve Germany, German German economy, yeah. uh, and then the Nord Stream to Nord Stream One currently brings only forty percent of what it should because magically Gazprom decided that in July they will start maintenance. Why are they doing this now? Because of course they want to prevent Europeans who are in panic from filling their storage for next winter. So storage, when the war started, was catastrophic, like in some countries, 20% or lower, you know, Germany even less. Now, if I look at the European numbers, it's 60. So it's a worry for Putin that Europe could be less amenable to blackmail come winter, right? Only 8% of 
currently comes through this main pipeline in Ukraine, and probably that's going to be cut off. And there was the, even issues that maybe maybe Russians will just sabotage it, but they don't need to do it. They can just cut it off. Right. So uh, and so the question is, what happens? What is this maintenance? Well, it's a it's a very well known um, strategy. Uh, at the beginning of the war, in a different market, which is oil market, Russia did precisely that. So oil uh, comes to Europe also through several pipelines, not least from Kazakhstan, from Tengiz Field, which is northern part of the Caspian, and then it crosses Russia north of Caucasus to uh, be uh, pumped through a pipeline that goes under the Black Sea. That was also made uh, unavailable to Europeans because of maintenance, right, at the beginning of the war, right? So we know that. Now, one thing that we don't know is that, of course, at the beginning of the war, a vice chancellor Habeck in Germany started going around the world, came to Washington, went to Norway, to Qatar, to Qatar, to, to negotiate new deals for LNG. And Germany is very busily building two floating LNG terminals right now, adds two more next year to become more independent. They're opening lignite mines, which is, you know, very dirty coal that will be put back on, on track and that despite having greens in, yeah. in power, but I think German public is, uh, appreciates the pragmatism of greens, who are also the most vocal supporters of Ukraine among different parties in, in Germany, in addition to, you know, the opposition CDU. Um, but there are members of, of the government, so that really matters. Uh, and so the Germany is doing a lot. And so LNG is, is, is one solution. U.S. of course, stepped up to the plate, you know, we uh, very quickly ramped up the exports. Japan helped as well, diverting some of the um, cargoes that were destined to Japan back to Europe. So that's really not the case of solidarity with Europe and Ukraine. Um, and so what happened on June 8th is suddenly very, very mysterious. 10% of European imports of LNG come through a um, terminal in Texas. The city is called Freeport. Freeport terminal blew up on June 8th, hmm. mysteriously. It blew up in a very um, sort of not easily understandable fashion. That is the safety systems, when, when overheating happened in the pipelines, the safety system just failed. Usually you have these things disintegrated because of the ICS, so industrial control system fragility against cyber attacks. Right now, it's being under investigation. There's a you know, FBI investigation in addition to the industrial investigation because it's very curious what happened. Of course, the timing of that. And it took out Freeport. Initially, we thought three months. It's going to take them out until at least September. So all this period where Europe during summer could use this LNG from America to fill their storage and not to be subject to Russian blackmail and continue supporting Ukraine, that has been taken out because of that explosion at, at Freeport. So there is a suspicion that Xenotime, so a cyber war entity in Russia used Triton, which is a malware, industrial malware, and that Triton might have been used in this case. Whether we learn about it or not is a different matter because you know it's quite possible that if FBI learns about it, it's a question of retaliation. It's an attack on critical infrastructure in the United States, and I'm not sure if this is going to be declassified, if we even learn about it and if it is true, right? But it, it's a, per, you know, makes perfect picture. Now, so you can wonder, you know, why, why is actually Putin cutting off the branch on which he's sitting, right? Natural gas has been such a fantastic right. tool to keep uh, Europe in line. 
Well, in his dreams, as we discussed before, was always that, you know, China would come to, to, to help. The problem with this is just sheer numbers. Um, Russia, as I mentioned before, export about between 165, 185 uh, billion cubic meters of natural gas per year. You know how much it exports to China? One-tenth of that, hmm. 16. 10 of those 16 come through a power of Siberia, a pipeline that goes um, through the northeast of China, the, the, the Dong Bay, um, linked also to, uh, to Sahali. Um, and it has a higher capacity. It has a capacity of about, you know, 38, but it's only about 10 that comes through it. There are some technical problems with this. And now there's a promise they build the second pipeline on the other side of Mongolia coming from Xinjiang, from East, from East Turkestan. And that is uh, called power of Serbia two, and supposedly going to bring 50 billion cubic meters in several years from now. In other words, if by this brinkmanship between Europe and Russia, Russian deliveries of gas are cut off over, um, over, over this winter, there is nothing to replace this market. Yes. Which brings us back to the main theme of our, of our series about tyranny. You know, the world is not flat, right? We don't always think the same way. And commercial thinking is not the only rationale that exists in the world, certainly not in countries that are in the conflict zone, such as Russia and China. And that simple arithmetic and the natural gas exports by Russia are a good illustration of That's an overwhelming amount of information, Thomas. Thank you. Hopefully <laughs> a recording so you can listen back. Yeah, well, I'm glad you said that. So yes, we are recording. I want to um, put the link in here for the show. I'm doing that for two reasons. And that is this show will go up on the show page, which is right there. You can also go there and sign up for next week's show, next Wednesday at 11 a.m. Eastern. And I encourage you to sign up for the shows in advance for a couple of reasons. One is you're going to get reminders from us that the show is happening, and I think that's useful. Uh, but if you go to the show page on Friday afternoon or later, you'll see this recorded show there. I want to put one other link here. Um, you know, there's a button in the upper right-hand corner of your screen that has either a dollar sign where it says pay host, Thomas and I are the hosts. And even if it says pay hosts, we're not paid. We're volunteers because this is a, you know, to get back to Anna's question about what can we do? And by the way, Anna, you always have an invitation here to come do a, a show on beams about the situation in Ukraine and how people can fight it. So that's one thing Anna could do when I open that in, invitation to others. But in this case, Thomas and I are the hosts, even if it says pay hosts, we're not being paid. We're volunteers. Every dollar, thank you, Anna, share the show with friends. Absolutely. Every dollar that we raise goes to Ilya Ponomonorov's Bravery Foundation, which is helping extract people from Russia who are trapped in jobs where they're forced to support the war and they don't personally want to support the war. They either extract those people or pay their legal bills and enable them to leave those jobs, which begins to shoot holes in the Russian war machine. So I just put a link to the Bravery Foundation there. There's a link to the show. As Anna says, share the show with friends. Thomas, I want to thank you for being here today. There's a question I see oh, sure. about uh, crude oil. Uh, you know, that could be another episode to talk about crude oil in detail. 
the difference is that the, the oil market is much more integrated historically. So the gas market is integrating only now thanks to this LNG phenomenon. Um, oil market, you know, there are slight differences in prices between West Texas Intermediate in the United States, Brent in, in, in Northern Europe, and even the Ural mix that, that's somewhat linked to Brent coming, coming out of Russia. Um, and there is a problem of profiteering, right? So right now, because Russia, uh, Europe already has slacked an embargo, as did the United States, um, against the Russian oil, Russia is trying to sell oil to other parties, not least India and China. This is more complicated, more costly because, you know, these vessels have to uh, float from Primorsk near St. Petersburg and requires transshipping. These are smaller vessels because it's a fairly shallow, shallow area. Um, but the truth is India is getting oil at, you know, 30%, 35% discount on China to lesser extent as well. The question is, what do we do? You know, there's a very big question about India's role again for another episode. Um, yes. uh, but you know, the, the West has its levers, not least for insurance companies that insure those cargoes, not least for the, um, uh, flags, you know, many of the ships are under European flags, not least Greek, uh, flags. So the pressure is possible. What we have seen from G7 is a pressure to actually cap prices on uh, hydrocarbons that are being exported by Russia. This is a fairly uh, complex mechanism, and I don't actually know yet what the uh, what the mechanism would be in detail, but that's, that's certainly an area to watch. Well, and one of the things I think we should also talk about, I think we've got like a year's worth of topics ahead of us, but, you know, we just talked about Russia using... Uh, 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 I'm blanking on the um, natural gas. They're using natural gas as a weapon of war. And China is doing the same thing economically. They're not doing it with gas, but they're doing it with other products, or at least that's my impression. And that's something that I think we should talk about in another episode. Uh, Anna says, write it down, please, Thomas, and we'll hunt for information. Write down what, Anna? Is it clear to you, Thomas, what she's no, asking you? No, no, right there. We'll hang on here for another minute, Anna. Uh, be a little more specific there, and uh, we'll make sure you get that information. Thomas, I'm going to let you go. I want to thank everybody for being here.